Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, brought to you by The China Project. Subscribe to The China Project to get the early release ad-free version of this podcast every week, and of course, to get our daily newsletter, the best way there is really to stay informed about China. You'll also have access to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. And if you like this podcast, you will love our next China event on November 2nd in New York with a special VIP evening featuring a live Seneca podcast on November 1st. It's going to be a night and a day of the most interesting and informative discussions on China that you will hear this year and really great networking opportunities as well. Please come introduce yourself to me and I will talk more about this before recommendations. Speaking of live Seneca podcasts, the last one we did was a while ago now in New York back in January when Jeremy Goldcorn and I chatted with our good friend Ian Johnson at the Rizzoli Bookstore. At the end of that conversation, Ian gave us a little tease about his new book, which he had just finished up back then. Well, that book is now out, or out very soon on September 26th, and it's called Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. Ian joins me today to talk about his very powerful and, and quite enjoyable book. Uh, enjoyable book in the sense that it's really well-written and well-structured with a lot of compelling characters. But if reading accounts of death by starvation and cannibalism and savage beatings tends to affect your sleep, maybe you know keep your copy on your desk or your coffee table and not on your nightstand, uh, it does take an unblinking, I mean unblinking look, uh, just as its subjects do in their own work, at some of the darkest periods and places in China's modern history. The anti-rightist campaign, the Great Leap Forward famine, labor camps, the Cultural Revolution— crackdowns in Tibet, the lockdown in Wuhan, and more. Uh, I have been looking forward to talking with Ian about this for quite some time. Ian, of course, is a veteran China journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, who was with the Wall Street Journal back when I met him in the late 90s, or so, and the uh, New York Times for many years. He has written extensively for the New York Review of Books and for the New Yorker, and he's the author of many books, including The Souls of China, which we talked to him about on this show, uh, which is about religion in the PRC, and Wild Grass, about ordinary Chinese citizens who've taken on the massive state apparatus. He is now a senior fellow in China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ian Johnson, welcome back to Seneca, and congrats, man, on the new book. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here again, and um, yeah, I'm really excited about the book. Uh, also excited to have you at our conference. Uh, you just confirmed that you'll be on our on one of our our panels at the conference. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm I'm so psyched that you can come. Uh, anyway, let's jump into the book. Uh, not surprisingly, you spend quite a bit of time. You know, this is a book about about underground historians. So you talk quite a bit about the importance to the Chinese state, and you know whether we're talking about imperial dynasts or the Communist Party state uh, of controlling historical narratives. I doubt there are many people who are listening to this show who haven't been exposed to the idea that controlling what people know about the past and how they interpret it, the, you know, the moral of the story, the lessons of history and whatnot, uh, was and remains very important to Chinese rulers from Qin Shi Huang on down, right? Uh, not just control, but also understanding of history. You know, Tang Taizong famously said, you know, uh, with history as a mirror, one may understand the rise and fall of, of nations. But but that idea is hardly alien to other civilizations or nations or societies, right? I mean, we see Putin in one obvious example, just like seeking to justify his war, war of aggression in Ukraine on the basis of his, you know, perverse version of history. Uh, but it, it's there in our language too. You know, history is written by the winners and, and all sorts of adages and aphorisms. But uh, even in our liberal societies where you're not going to get locked up or exiled or, or, or executed for challenging, you know, our own kind of foundational historical beliefs. Uh, it is not something that one undertakes lightly either. I just asked Nicole Hannah-Jones, right? Um, so would somebody reading your book and coming away thinking that this is a particularly Chinese uh, phenomenon or a Chinese concern, would they be correct in so thinking? Well, I think that history, as you say, matters in many societies, especially 
even in, in the country where I'm now living in the United States, um, where we're still debating issues from the late Ming dynasty, such as the introduction of, of slavery, uh, yeah, which was yeah, you know, yeah. the 1619 project. Right. Um, this is still a vital issue that people talk about. We're still debating stuff that would have taken place sort of in the Great Leap Forward or the anti-rightist campaigns. In other words, the civil rights movement from the 50s and 60s. Sure. Roe versus uh, Wade. Um, that's the... Tail end of the Cultural Revolution, yeah. <laughs> right, you know, I mean, so I think sometimes people say, well, that's all in the past in China. doesn't really matter. But it is really important in many countries. In China, it does have a residence because I think you have the world's you know, arguably, I don't want to step on a landmine here, but, you know, longest continuous civilization where people at least have a memory and are able to, you know, read documents going back hundreds of years. And we all know that in the past, dynasties would write the previous dynasty's history, usually as a morality lesson about why that dynasty collapsed and why the new dynasty had to sort of take over. And it's been a, a sacred calling in China ever since at least uh, Sima Qian or and, and, and on and on. So it does have a special resonance. And I, I think probably also the role of communism, which has this historical determinism that sure. the world is moving inexorably toward from slave society to feudal society to capitalist society to socialism to communism. And those things underlie a lot of what goes on in China today, even if at the end of the day, you could simply say, well, it's simply an authoritarian state that wants to justify its rule, and therefore they do it. But you know, as you said, I think it's probably true of many phenomena in society. Everything is present in every society. It's just in different mixes and in different to different degrees, right? And in China, this is a pretty pronounced idea, and but it's not unique. Thank God we in the West are free of this, you know, teleology that would, you know, think maybe that we're moving inexorably toward the triumph of liberal democratic capitalism. Nobody would ever say that, right? right. No. no. <laughs> uh, anyway, the book introduces the reader to a number of people that you call counter historians or underground historians, uh, as in the title. Uh, we meet documentary filmmakers, we meet an anthropologist, citizen journalists uh, who aren't perhaps familiar already to most of our listeners, but we also have, you know, lots of better known figures like the writer Fang Fang. Uh, we've talked about her on this show in the context of, of the Wuhan lockdown. Uh, or the late writer Wang Xiaobo, whose who's, you know, golden age is, is one of the first things that I tried to read when I, you know, had enough Chinese and it defeated me, but it was I could see, you know, that it was it was interesting. Let's let's take a look at some of the characters who you focus on and, and give the listeners a sense of, of who they are. Let's start with well, I think maybe of as one of the two main characters who, who threads pretty much through the whole book, Ai Xiaoming, the documentary filmmaker and activist, actually, I think probably one of the better known activists of recent decades. So tell me about Ai Xiaoming. So Ai Xiaoming is the granddaughter of a famous KMT general who led the ill-fated defense of Nanjing. He was given this a suicide mission basically by Chiang Kai-shek when Chiang Kai-shek realized it wasn't a defensible city and was after the city fell and and then of course the massacre, the horrible massacre happened, he retreated to Hunan, his native Hunan province, where he uh, sort of ran a, an academy. And in any case, he his daughter married a Air Force flyer and he died and she remarried again, and their daughter was Ai Xiaoming. Mm -hmm. And Ai Xiaoming was born, I should know this off the top of my head, I believe it was 1953. Yeah. And so she was the product of New China, and her name basically means Bright Dawn, which is mm -hmm. one of these typical names that people got in that optimistic era. She grew up in a household where politics was always present, but best not spoken about because mm. of her grandfather. Although he stayed on, he didn't go to Taiwan. He was in the end still a KMG general. She was sort of of this blood lineage uh, being tainted. This came out then in the Cultural Revolution when her granddad was then arrested, thrown into a, basically like house arrest or some sort of prison and, and died there about 1970. She denounced her parents in good fashion, and she tried to sort of keep her head down in the 60s and 70s. She was allowed to go to one of the early farmer military universities, the Gongnong Bing you know, universities. And she 
didn't really get involved that much in politics, but she was there. She, she was in Beijing in 1989. She was teaching by this time. She was one of the. She was the first woman after the Cultural Revolution to get a PhD in Chinese literature, and she was teaching in Beijing and decided. Uh, not to get involved in in eighty nine, right? Instead, she uh, sort of kept her head down, and also I think she'd seen a lot of these student movements and so on. She was a little bit concerned. She went down afterwards to Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou, Sunzhongshan Dashi, and she taught there in the sort of more free, freer atmosphere down there, and got really interested in feminism. Mm-hmm. So she spent one year, I believe it was 1996 to 97, at the University of the South. In Tennessee, yeah. Yeah, in Tennessee. And she began to borrow films. She really got interested in films and, and plays, dramas. She would, Every day she'd go to the school library and borrow a couple of films and stay up late at night watching them, studying how films were made. It became a very, very serious hobby for her. Right. And at the same time, she encountered the vagina monologues, right, which right. was a, a, a very big, still is a pretty big theatrical production, but back then it was sort of new. She came back to China and she had her class perform it. She had her students perform it. And then she called her old friend Hu Jie, who is a documentary filmmaker, very sure. prominent person. He shows up in my book quite a bit. He's not one of the main main characters. But uh, she had him come down and do a documentary film about her students uh, making the vagina monologues. And watching him work, she thought, you know, I can do this too, because this is now, maybe this is one of the key points of my book. It's sort of a, in some ways, a simple point, but overlooked, I think, the early digital technologies, such as digital cameras and those kind of things, they made it possible for people to film much easier way. I mean, we take this for granted now. Our iPhones are infinitely better than, than than even those cameras back then. But you didn't need to have a big roll of film and, and a big camera on a tripod and then have the film developed at some store and stuff like that and cut in a production studio. You could just film it on your handheld camera. And as, as the years went on, they get better and better, right? You have image stabilization software and you can just cut it all on your laptop. Right. So she thought, I can do this. And she began to branch out and make short documentary films, 20, 30-minute things about events in her neck of the woods down there in Guangdong province, such as the Ukan uh, farmers uh, revolution strike, the rape of a young woman that made national news. And so she began to leave the purely academic pursuits of textual analysis, which is what she did. She was a translator of Kundera, earlier on, and just more say, purely academic feminist issues, and to become more of an activist. Yeah. So already, very early on, she's taking on topics that she knows are sort of in the verboten category, or at least are transgressive to, you know, from the perspective of authorities. Yeah. And I think another key thing there is that this was probably the most open period in decades for China. People always talk about the 1980s as being the most open period when there was all kinds of intellectual debate and ferment. But that was often, I think, primarily among intellectuals and the sort of real urban elite in a few big Chinese cities. But that's right. The internet in the 2000s, as simple as it was, and the growth of blogs and all this stuff, it made it possible for people to spread ideas. And you had a slightly more tolerant, although only temporarily so, but a more tolerant government at that time that maybe allowed this to, to take place. 2003 to 2008, it was, you know, the end of SARS and Sun Zhigang. Yes, Sun Zhigang. Uh, all yeah. the way up until the Olympics. That was, yeah. I think most people who lived there during that time, and, and I did, and you did, you you you. I came later, actually. I kind of missed a lot of that. I, I left in 01 and didn't really come back until 07, 08. Yeah. Right. You were, you were there in spirit, though. I, we, we all sort of had Ian in the air still. Anyway, um, let's, let's, let's move her story forward a little bit. Um, and, and the title of your book refers to this short-lived Samistat publication called Spark uh, that managed, despite only having published two issues, I think it was, uh, and then just to a tiny little distribution list. It somehow survived and got preserved now digitally. Uh, and this was you know, something that she was very, very uh, interested in and focused on, right? Yeah, so she she made films. I guess her last big big film was on a labor camp in Gansu Province, uh, Jabiango, 
And so she was interested in the anti-rightist campaign. Out of the anti-rightist campaign came this group of students who were at Lanzhou Dashe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were sent to the city, uh, to villages on the outskirts of the city of Tianshui right. in Gansu. And they, they saw the famine unfolding in front of them. And they thought, like a lot of people did, that, oh, the authorities just don't know about this. Otherwise, they would do something. So they, uh, one of their members, one of the, there were about 40 of the students sent from Lanzhou University. They wrote, he wrote a letter to his contacts in Beijing. He was a party member. And they, a month later, some trucks showed up with police and they just beat the crap out of him, basically. And so they right. thought, oh, I guess the authorities do know about this, but they don't really care. So what can we do? And they came up with a sort of quixotic idea of let's start a journal and publish this and send articles out to decision makers, essentially, in different cities. They, some of them, you know, they're from different parts of China. One person was from Xi'an, another was from Guangzhou and so on. So they said, well, I know people in Guangzhou, I know people in Xi'an. We can mail it to those people. So they got a hold of a mimeograph machine. And this is actually a tribute to the local officials near Tianshui that they saw they were, this is very poor, these villages, and almost everyone was illiterate. Right. The local officials thought, Great, we've got all these students here. Let's ha- start a sort of open university. Well, they'll they'll teach Chinese written, you know, write, reading and writing to our our peasants, our farmers. So they were given a bit of leeway, and they were given access to the offices of the party. Just you know, I'm not talking about anything grand. This is just like a little room. But one of them had a mimeograph sure. machine, and so they wrote up their essays and they printed it, sent it off. And the and, and basically nothing happened. Um, then they thought things are really getting out of control. We need to one of us should try to go abroad and try to get help. Make a long story short, <laughs> they were um, snapped up, thrown in jail. Three of them were executed, and the stuff lay buried in police files until the 1980s, when people began to get rehabilitated. Right. And that's when this material came to light again. So people could look into their files. And in some cases in the 1990s, one of them made photographs of everything that was in her file, everything, including letters to her lover, um, all the back copies of Spark. They'd kept everything in the police files, being a good bureaucratic state. And this just stayed in a small group of people in Gansu, uh, not in Gansu, but among these survivor groups. And then came again, digital technology, PDFs. People collated the photos into PDFs and began to circulate them and sort of say, look what we found, that students 35 years ago were grappling with the same issues that we have today. And as a very prominent critic in in Beijing, the the film critic and and translator Cui Weiping said, um, now we have found our genealogy. We know that there were people doing exactly the same thing decades earlier. That this we're, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We realize that there have been Chinese people concerned about these issues for decades and decades since really the founding of the PRC, and that's the creation of a collective memory. I think that I'm trying to describe in this book. One of the main themes. Surely they were aware that there were regime critics before. They knew that people had been struggled against. You know from well before, I mean, in Yan'an, they were aware. It's just that this was the emergence of, of, of Spark and other materials after the death of Mao and the emergence of Deng. This sort of gave them sort of a concrete connection to it. Yeah, I think it supercharged that. So again, and you would have um, a small number of people, um, maybe we're talking about a few thousand people in the country in a few big cities who would kind of be aware of this because they were in the know or whatnot. But now, with the digital technologies and all this stuff spreading around throughout the 2000s, and what I, so what I sort of posit over the past 20, 25 years, you have an explosion of, of information about this, despite government crackdowns. And it's, it's possible just to email people stuff or give them a memory stick in, in ways that just wasn't possible in the past. I mean, in the past, if you, you, know, if you think of the term Zamizdat, what that originally meant was you had sheaths of paper and carbon paper in between it, and somebody hammered out on a typewriter a five-copy version, you know, version of, a, of an essay and then passed it to somebody else. And it was really slow. With a PDF and email, you can send it out to hundreds of people at one time. And this is indeed what one of the Sam is that publications that I write about in the book, what it does. They, they send circulate to right. thousands of people like that. So this 
filmmaker Ai Xiaoming has an entrepreneur brother named Ai Luming, who is a billionaire and not surprisingly a party member. I, I was it was really an interesting detail. I mean, again, they are scions of this uh, of a prominent, uh, well known sort of military hero from the the anti Japanese war. That may be part of the reason why she's been relatively protected. What did, what did you glean about her relationship with her brother? Is he supportive of what she does? Uh, do they argue over it? Has he had to pay any kind of a price at all for the work that his sister does? As far as I can tell, he hasn't. But they, she really compartmentalizes her life. She does not like to talk about her husband and her son and her brother. Mm-hmm. And she lives in a complex, a real estate project that her brother developed. And she right. had sort of a... she has. Two, two houses. She's got her family house there that she bought. And she's got another little tiny, or she had a little tiny sort of guest house where she'd meet her dissident friends who would come over. They'd never come to her home. And she spends a lot of the time in the sort of big family mansion, if you will, or villa or something like that, where her father lived and she looked after him. He passed away in about 2020. She spent a lot of time looking after him in in this big house and all of this was made possible by her brother i think you know who who um but she never involves him um he's a party member um he does his work when the coronavirus struck he turned his whole company toward uh producing surgical masks and stuff like that so there are several other characters who we could you know look at and I will ask you to talk a little bit about, but um, there is a citizen journalist named Zhang Xie, who is the other woman that you really focus on, the other kind of through-line protagonist of your book. Uh, can you talk about her a bit? Yeah, she uh, grew up in Tianshui and uh, went uh, to school in Xi'an and studied law. And then she became a journalist. And she never joined the party and was her family always had a skeptical attitude toward the party because they experienced a great famine directly. Um, there's this right. sort of incredible, to me at least, story of how her grandfather sacrificed himself to save the family. And this was something that the family, with the, that they acknowledged at least once a year at Chinese New Year when they gave him a plate of food first and the kids had to go out and kowtow to his grave. And so she sort of grew up and her father never joined the party um, she grew up skeptical of the party. And when she had her first job in 1998, she was at Huashang Bao, um, which is a, was at that time a small Xi'an-based newspaper that was aimed primarily at overseas Chinese business people. And right. it became, like a lot of the, the, the newspapers in China at that time, it became commercialized, not privatized, but commercialized. So it's still owned by the state and whatever obscure Dan Wei was in charge of that um, particular, um, you know, part of the government. But she, they had to make money. And they did that by becoming sort of a hard hitting, almost tabloidy investigative newspaper that rushed to the scenes of accidents first and investigated misdoings. Her, one of her mentors was this Beijing, not Beijing University, but I think the Beijing Media University, Jian Jiang professor who mm-hmm. translated a lot of you know works by Pulitzer Prize winning people and, and tried to sort of set standards for journalism. This is really a golden age of Chinese journalism from the late 90s for about a decade when there was all kinds of crusading, muckraking people like Hu Shu Li, you know, with Tsai Jing that she she founded. And and all this kind of work that 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 challenged did not challenge the party directly, but it uncovered problems in society. So she she came of age in that era, and but about by 2013 there was the famous uh, Southern Weekend event when Southern Weekend, which was one of these leading newspapers, would they always had their New Year's editorial where they would um, exhort the government to engage in some sort of reform or do something positive for society. This And they were, in 2013, they were stopped from doing that. And this caused a major uproar in Chinese media circles. The next year, um, her newspaper sort of came in for it and to tighten up and, and so on. And she quit and became an independent journalist. Well, she she had actually written in support of the people who, the editorial team at, at Southern yeah. Weekend, who had written on constitutionalism, right. sort of the exhortation that year was, 
simply to get the party to follow its own damn constitution. Yeah, right? and she was head of the op-ed or the editorial page for Huashangbao by that at that point. Right, and right. so she had a really important sort of bully pulpit at that time. And and but she was demoted, and she thought they were going to fire her anyway. And she decided, I'm just going to try it on my own as an independent freelance journalist. And so off she went. Uh, yeah, so her, her story we'll come back to. Uh, there's another person I'd like to introduce to listeners, and that's Tan Hecheng, who wrote about the massacre in Dao County in Hunan province that took place during the Cultural Revolution. So Dao County is in Hunan, sort of on the Guangxi border, a pretty remote place. But it's it's quite famous, the, the, the massacre that happened there during the Cultural Revolution, possibly because of Tan himself, you know, who, who's covered it. So, so you know, I, I've encountered this before, you know, in, in my readings. Uh, so you interviewed him six years ago for the New York Review of Books, and that's how I first read about him. Uh, but talk a little bit about him and his work and, and how he figures into your book. Yeah, he's a typical example of one of these people who have what you might consider to be sort of like a wild hair up their ass. And this is that they cannot really... Um, as he puts it, I can't turn black into white. There's a, he has a very, he's a very funny guy, quite profane. He says, I can kiss ass as well as anybody can. I'm the world's mm-hmm. greatest ass kisser. If you want me, I'll write an article any way you want, but I somehow can't turn black into white. And so he was, he was working for this uh, literary magazine called Hibiscus in the 1980s. This was the time of Hu Yaobang, the reforming party secretary, who said, we have to uncover these problems from the past and sort of make amends and set things right. There was a big investigative team that was sent down to Dow County, and uh, Tan went down as an official journalist, and so was given access to everything. And then when he, by the time he got back, though, it was already the era of the would it be the spiritual pollution campaign. Yeah, that was eighty two. So eighty six was the anti bourgeois. That was the bourgeois liberalization, campaign. right? So it was eighty six by the time he got back, and his article was you know, put on hold. It was never going to be published. And it was funny, an editor said, you know, don't get so uptight about it. Things are going to get better and better. By the year 2000 or 2010, when you're older, before you retire, you'll be able to publish all this stuff. And But he didn't listen to that advice, fortunately, I think. Instead, he uh, continued to go down there on his own, so in summers, on vacations, and he went back over and over again and wrote the whole story about it, which was published in Hong Kong, in, in many sort of parts, there are many iterations of it. I think the first time he published it was mm-hmm. in 2010, and then he updated it again and again and again. I think the last sort of update was 2019 or so. And um, I've met him on many occasions. He lives a lot of the time in Beijing. And so he was he's one of these guys that just can't let it go. And, and you right. know, you can say that's a... A problem, perhaps, but it's also, I guess, what drives many people who are sort of crusading and trying to seek justice. He's not personally affected by this at all. His family didn't die there. He just thought this was a problem, and he said he felt he'd given everyone his word that he would write about this, and he did. So he was a fascinating character. I traveled around Dow County with him, where he's kind of a celebrity in some ways. Although, you know, some people think he's great, other people hate him because he's such a uh, muckraker, muckraker yeah. and yeah. troublemaker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's sort of a Socrates-style person, and which reminds me of another character, Chen Hongguo, this Xi'an-based professor who I started, I guess, the, the now-defunct Zhi Wu Zhi Salon, a kind of, uh, again, a side of self-styled Socrates. You know, he, he sees himself in, the, in that role with Taoist characteristics, I suppose. Um Tell, tell us about him and the 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 Georgia Salon. That salon was great, and I think it was. It's really a pity that it was closed down because it gives you an idea of what Chinese civil society can be like. It was closed down in 2019, and was uh, basically just a space. I, I always thought of it as a library, but it's not really a library. It was just a, a cultural open space, a little cafe. And Chen Hongguo mm-hmm. was a law professor. He decided after. 2013, when the government promulgated this document nine, which um, limited what could be taught, including constitutionalism and things like that, he decided there's no future for him in academics. And so he would go into sort of public education by teaching people in this kind of, in this salon and holding lectures. He invited some of the best known public intellectuals in China, all came, anybody who's anyone, all they came and spoke in Xi'an. 
and he had a he has this you know cafe and the juru juru as you say is from this Socratic paradox I know I know nothing and so when their their logo was right. Socrates with a red beard and but this was a meeting place for many people like that and I think it's the kind of thing that you could see coming up again in the future when things if if things but I think maybe when things open up again in the future you've spent a, a lot of your life now dealing with people who are regime critics or dissenters or self-described dissidents even, you know, people who are taking on the system. Um, so besides the obvious things that they have in common, like, you know, no small measure of personal bravery or courage, uh, you can't deny that, you know, whatever you think of their motives or their goals. What else from your experience do they have in common? Well, do they all have that wild hair up their bum? Or? Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Tan Ho Chung and one of the um, interesting encounters with him, which was on this bridge, Widow's Bridge, which was built by a widow in the Ming Dynasty or something like that. And um, he met the descendant of Zhou Duni, who is a famous Neo-Confucian philosopher mm -hmm. and you know, mm -hmm. 13 centuries or 13 generations earlier or something like that. Um, and and, and, and Mr. the younger Mr. Zhou, he's a guy who wanted to know what happened to his family. He's grateful to Tan Ho Chung for what he's done and documenting everything. But he also wants to get on with his life. And he sort of, um, it was going to be, I think, a thousand, so the 1,100th anniversary of Zhou Duanyi's birth or death or something like that. And he wanted to be part of that. And they were going to have a big event. And he runs a sort of coffee shop, internet cafe type thing in the small town. And he has to get along with the party. He can't afford, in a way, to alienate the party. People like Tan, I mean, I call them, I don't call them dissidents. I call them underground historians because a lot of them do have one foot in the system. So Tan kept his job at Hibiscus. He just did this on the side. And he was he was sort of marginalized at the magazine, never promoted, never anything, you know, participated in any competitions or or anything like that. But um the, the, but still, they are outsiders. And they think of themselves often, another term that comes up a lot is Jianghu. The yeah. um, knights errant of of ancient China, people who live by this sort of code of honor, and well, the, the Jianghu isn't. I mean, the wuxia are those people, but the Jianghu is sort of that that scene in which the wuxia kind of live, right? The milieu of the rivers and the lakes. Yeah, uh, the sworn brotherhoods who live there outside the law outside the sort of agricultural, urban-based communities of where Chinese civilization was, you know, dominant. They sort of had their own uh, bands of brothers. And in, in modern day world, I th think of them as, you know, sisterhoods also. Um, and yeah, people like, like Tan He Chang and Jiang Xue and Hai Xiaoming are, are part of that. They kind of know who many of them know each other, if not personally, yeah. at least by name and reputation, and they'll help each other out as well. Um, so I was asking about, you know, things that they have in common. Uh, it's interesting because I, I do want to get back and talk about that encounter with Tan Ho Chung uh, and, and the descendant of of, of the Neo-Confucian scholar on the Widow's Bridge. But um, I, don't, I don't know whether you read this interesting paper uh, that Rory Truex at Princeton wrote. It's about personality and political descent. I, I guess I was wondering whether the people that you've dealt with exhibit the qualities he describes. He says in that paper and in a podcast that I did with him uh, that China's discontented citizens just on average tend to be, you know, pretty antisocial. They're highly introverted. They have a disagreeable personality. They're willing, they're, you know, they get into arguments with people all the time. They have, they have, um, you know, uh, disharmony in their social relationships. Uh, they're actually also kind of more anxious and more fearful and uh, less emotionally dependent on others. They're kind of lone wolf types, he says. I mean, Rory is very, very careful that, you know, to say this does not mean that all regime critics or dissidents are cantankerous sociopaths, right? I mean, but anyway, I, I ask because it was by no means clear to me that the people you profile fit this description in a particular way. I mean, a lot of them seem awfully nice. Um, so what 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 were your impressions? I mean, did they have that kind of misanthropic, not, not misanthropic, but sort of, you know, asocial personality? You know, when you were in some ways, tilting at windmills in an authoritarian state, when you have that kind of a personality, I think you probably are a bit of a lone wolf. You're willing to yeah. 
sacrificed quite a bit. Um, in the case of, say, Zhang Xue, the, um, the, the independent journalist, who's one of, as you mentioned, the through stories in my book, you know, she she paid a pretty heavy price. Her this is, is in my book as well. But her husband is a researcher at the local um, Shanxi Academy of Social Sciences and Religion, and the thought police went to him and went to his boss and said, you know, you've got to get your wife under control because she's publishing all this stuff. They argued, and that was one of the key reasons why they ended up divorcing because they just um, had completely different wow. views. So there's a there there's a price that people pay for that. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that many of the people, I can't judge them all, but many of the people I wrote about, you know, Ai Xiaoming, they have sort of normal lives and she's a, kept her job at the university. Maybe in his case, it's more the classic real dissident person, you know, who's living off very, various things like sort of Liu Xiaobo or somebody like that, um, who's mm. completely outside the system. Some, some of the people I write about are outside the system, but I think pretty much all of them, the main, the main thrust of them are people who have at least one foot inside the system. And Yeah, I think that's what makes, makes it really interesting, and I think that's one of the, the, the important takeaways from your book. I think it'll be surprising to some of the, the readers of it that, you know, they're able to be heard at all. The state has not, in all cases, just squashed them. Uh, you know, you've got that anthropologist Guo Yuhua, who he's written extensively about you know people suffering uh, in Yangjiago, which is this place that's sort of hallowed in party history, right in the loose plateau near the Yan'an base area. But you know, she still kept her job at Tsinghua, right? Uh, yeah, uh, she kept her job. I mean, she yeah, yeah. she suffered in some ways. Also, they. No promotion. No promotion. No, yeah, no campus housing or no yeah. university housing, which uh, is a big yeah. deal in a city like Beijing. Big deal, yeah. But her true. husband's an entrepreneur, and they bought some uh, property, you know, twenty odd years ago in Huilongguan or someplace like that, and so she commutes in. Um, Huilongguan's not so bad. <laughs> it used to be That's terrible. Like North now it seems Ring like Road, it's not yeah. so bad. Yeah, I know. Back then, I I remember, you know, that's actually I I I lived out there. Uh, in 1989 at this sort of ex-commune kind of near this abandoned move-and-pick hotel near Huilin Gwen at one point while we were, you know, starting my old band. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the other things I've noticed, I mean, it's it, it's in this book, it's in a lot of your work, there are a number, quite a number, really, of Christians. Is this because you are particularly interested in Christianity in China, some form of selection bias, or is it that Christians are actually overrepresented in dissident communities or in, in sort of critical communities? Or maybe there's something about Christianity that predisposes you, in, in China at least, toward dissent, or maybe something about dissent in China that predisposes you toward Christianity? Have you, have you given that much thought? Well, I have given that thought. Now, the two main characters are not Christian, Ai Xiaoming and Zhang Xue, but... Right, um, but quite a few of the others are. Chen Hongguo, you mentioned, for example, yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, he's a Christian, um, or he, he calls himself a cultural Christian because he doesn't like to go to, to church every Sunday or something uh -huh, like that. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, there, there's a debate about that. If you look at the rights lawyers movement, the Weixuan mm -hmm. movement of lawyers, um, of there was a disproportionate number of them, maybe 25% or 30% or something were Christian and out of a, in all of China, the number of Christians is about 5%, I would say, right. but yeah, roughly 5%, say 60, 70 million. So uh, now why is that? There's some people hypothesizing you can find examples of when you were engaging in this kind of work, you need a support community and Christian groups tend to support you and some of them have converted after starting their work. Um, right. Others will say that the separation of church and state or the idea of a higher moral authority will lead people to, um, to Christ will lead Christians then to challenge the state. You know, it's, it's hard because the Christianity also says, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, you know, and so right. you can also f make your peace with the, with the establishment if you want to. So I'm not sure. I think that might have been just accidental. I didn't certainly don't think I set out. It wasn't the same set of people, or this isn't like a subset of the people I researched for the souls of China. So I think it could have been accidental. I'm not really sure, for to to be honest, why that is. 
In you mentioned document number nine, and one of the concepts in there that um, they identify, I think it was like seven. Ironically, we're talking about Christianity. Seven sins, right? Um, most of them are, you know, kind of the result of foreign influence. One of the ones that they, and I think it's particularly relevant to your book about underground or counter historians, is this idea of historical nihilism, right? This idea that you know there are sacred interpretations of the party's history, of the nation's history, that they will not brook dissent from the revisionists about. So what are some of those really sensitive topics? What are some of the, these, uh, these things that the party just gets really twisted up about? Well, some of them, there's a, there's a huge laundry list of these things that the um, authorities have come up with, including that the long march wasn't as long as some people claim it was, um, for example, or that Mao's son was sort of guilty. Who the Mao's son who died in the Korean War was guilty of his own death because he was sloppy and careless. There's something about him, you know, wanting to cook fried rice or something like that. And yeah, giving away their position giving by away cooking. Their position. Right. Um, there's also a famous kind of heroic battle, guerrilla battle outside south of Beijing on this peak, uh, Liangya Peak or Lingya Peak. Um, and miraculously, these communist soldiers jumped off the peak but didn't die. And, and, and if you challenge that, which some people have, then you can be sued, um, which is what some people did. And so there's a whole array, array of things that you just can't really challenge. Or that Mao wrote a certain poem, Snow. Some people say, no, it wasn't written by Mao. It was written by his secretary or by somebody else. And these things on individually, they're kind of ludicrous, right? Well, who cares? Mao wrote a bunch of poems, whether he wrote this poem or that poem, or maybe his secretary did help him, just like we know Rembrandt had a studio or something like that. You you know, you could argue it that way, right? Sure. But they 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 I think they view all these things as thin edges of a wedge that could destroy mm. the party's legitimacy. So as as unremarkable as each claim might be, or you could say, well, a long march, okay, so it wasn't ten thousand Lee, it was 9,000 or 8,000 it was still a sort of remarkable thing, right? But once you challenge that, then you begin to say, well, maybe the party wasn't really so heroic. And maybe it turns out that a lot of the people were on opium on their long march and they kept concubines and some of the leaders were carried in sedan chairs and stuff like that. And then, you know, it's a slippery slope once you allow these things to, to start. That's why the party has these interpretations of history that it insists on as being the sort of gospel truth. And that's what they've, I think this is why, to me, the battle for control of history is one of Xi's signature domestic policies over the past decade plus of his rule. He started right at the very beginning in 2013, just after taking power, he brought up the whole historical nihilism thing. Yeah. He said, you can't negate, you can't negate the Mao period and or the reform period. They're two sides of the same coin. So you can't sort of say Mao was terrible, blah, 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 the anti-rightist campaign, the famine, the cultural revolution, a string of disasters, because that would undermine the party also. So he sort of put the end of that and then closed off the most important counter-history journal, which his father had even endorsed, right. uh, Yan Hong Shunqiu, China Through the Ages. That was a top priority for Xi as he tries to, as he would see it, reassert control over China. Right. So he sees these ultimately as load-bearing walls, that, that whole edifice of party control could ultimately come tumbling down were there enough sort of small cracks put into it by little instances of, you know, unpunished historical nihilism, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not likely, right, that if, if you show that the Long March was not so great or that the Communist Party didn't do this or that, that the, the whole state isn't going to fall down, right? But they're always talking about culture, and the party is always talking about ideology, party building. They want the people on some level to believe. They know they're not all going to believe, all the party members and cadres especially, they know they're not all going to believe in Lei Feng and these other model heroes or slightly improbable characters from the party's mythology, but they want them to believe fundamentally that this is a sacred task run by an outstanding organization that has saved China. Right. That is important. Right, right. I mean, the problem is, of course, that they've sort of tied themselves uh, to Mao uh, and his legacy, even though in many ways, fundamentally, they, they aren't Mao and his party, or at least I, I would be 
more comfortable saying that before, say, 2013. But uh, <laughs> um, and, and this is this is something I want to talk uh, talk to you about. Um, let me get to that in a little bit because I want to ask you about this first. You've encountered this innumerable times, doubtless, in talking to ordinary Chinese people, even maybe to educated Chinese people, uh, about the work that you do, about the the, the people who you write about. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times. I know I have. They'll tell you some version of, you have to let those wounds heal. You can't just keep opening the dressing or picking at the scab. Uh, I've heard so many variations on this. There are these ugly truths that, in an ideal world, uh, Chinese society, including its leadership, would squarely reckon with these, but instability would, would result. You know, uh, We live in a less than ideal world, and the cost would simply not be worth the benefit of, of letting the truth be known. Um, I'm sure that the underground historians that you've talked with over the years have heard the same thing exactly, right? So I, I'm curious what they say and what you say to this as somebody who is you know, giving their voices a very prominent platform in the West. And doubtless drawing a lot of fire for that. Yeah, I think a lot of them would say, well, the party itself, after the Cultural Revolution, for example, recognized that they needed to tell a more complete, give a more complete account of the past. Mm -hmm. um, and the party secretary I mentioned earlier, Hui Bang, he tried to do that. Um, so it's not antithetical with party control to try to have a better, more complete accounting of the past. Xi's own father, as I mentioned, he was a supporter of this magazine that was the premier counter-history magazine in China. Yeah, Yan Huang Chunqiu. Yan Huang Chunqiu, you know, for, for 20 odd years, even gave it some calligraphy or something like that. And um, so, so I don't think that they see this as, as necessarily against the party per se, but that somehow there has to be a better accounting of the past yeah. in order to prevent uh, mistakes from being made again. And people might say that Xi Jinping is an example of, of why they need a better accounting of the past. So, yeah, I, know, I, I completely agree. Um, he, he stands as the perfect example of why we need a better accounting. But, you know, I also sort of have, have some empathy for those people who, who do want to get on with their lives. Uh, do you think that there's any danger in the lionization of regime critics. I mean, we do an awful lot of it in the West. We do it for very understandable reasons. I think it's just sort of in our nature. You know, I think in the West we have this, in America especially, kind of we root for the underdog, right? We we, we like to see the story in which the, the person who has truth on their side and justice on their side ultimately prevails against authoritarianism. That's very natural to us. And besides, these guys, their stories are really compelling. They make really interesting reading, but they also reinforce, especially if all of their assumptions are just sort of accepted at face value without skepticism, they reinforce a view of China, of the Communist Party that, let's say, does not exactly lend itself to nuance. It, it, it turns into a very, you know, black and white thing. So that's one thing. But the other that I worry about, and, you know, you talked about this a little bit when we talked about the encounter between Tan He Chung and the descendant of, of, of Zhou Duyi. On, on the uh, Widow's Bridge in Dow County. Um, I think there is this, I mean, I've seen this before, this kind of unfair expectation of heroism. Um, this is it's sort of the flip side of lionizing the bold dissident. Um, so the person who doesn't speak out, who is willing to trade little uh, individual liberty for temporary safety, um, they're thought you know, to deserve neither liberty nor safety, and, and they're viewed with something like contempt, right? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, maybe as part of that, would you say that these counter-historians, the people you write on, are noteworthy because they're so exceptional or because you think in some way they're representative? I think they are exceptional people in the sense of being unusual, um, extraordinary. You know, I, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. When you said do we lionize always the the idea that memory, that we can never forget the past that we can't move forward one of my thoughts was uh, germany which um where i lived for a long time and in the 19 you know we think of germany as the model place where they deal with the past and they talk about the holocaust all the time but that wasn't really the case right after the war it only really mm. took off in the 1960s and really with the 1968 student movement and Adenauer, the first very successful chancellor of Germany, who gave it the stability and the prosperity, the economic wonder, the Wirtschaftswunder, 
um, he was accused of having a lot of uh, people who would work for the Nazi regime sure. in his in his cabinet and in, in his government and top levels of his government. I'm not saying that, that therefore that's good or that's okay, <laughs> but you can kind of you can kind of see that there is sometimes a need to get on with things a bit that you can't as collectively as a society wallow in the past. But I think also, you know, one of the points I think is is not so much that all Chinese people think like this, or there's a hidden silent majority of people who think that there should be a reckoning with the past, but it's that it's just to challenge people a little bit in the West who think that there is no dissent in China left. That right. there's no, and I hate to use that word dissent because it really has a, a sort of a loaded meaning of some kind of quasi lunatic person in a room writing treaties and stuff like that. But that there are no, there's no free thinking left in China. That the party's won, the surveillance state is won, or that you know everything that you read in People's Daily is happening across the country. That Xi Jinping controls the whole uh, show. And I think I wanted to sort of show that, hey, you know what? Even despite all these crackdowns, there are people who are still doing things in China. And even if their numbers are not large, change always normally often happens in societies with small numbers of people. You know, if 100 years ago in the United States, if you had sort of said certain things about um, black people should be should have equality and stuff like that, many parts of society would not have agreed with you. Right, this right. Uh, you know, uh, racial views were were, very, were really regressive back then, and there were or they would have raised arguments like you hear now that you know it, these things take time. Right, society can only move so quickly. That you know, yeah, sure, uh, you know, co- like council patience, and of course that sounds absolutely ludicrous to us now. Right. Yeah, and I think with time, these things that we're seeing now, these people I write about with in China, they could become more mainstream. I mean, it doesn't require a democratic revolution. It could be simply uh, China continues down Xi Jinping's path of uh, tight control over society and economics. Um, The economy slows. China gets caught in the mid-income trap. Eventually, Xi dies. And the party decides, as it has in the past, to correct again and to go to a more open period. And people like this or people like them, maybe not exactly these people, because who knows when this... Uh, thing will ha- could happen, but that they become um, accepted and that their views become much more mainstream than they are now. So that's why some of the people I profile, they know that they're they're writing for future generations of Chinese people, but they want this work. It's really important for them that Chinese people are re- researching this. And some of the people I wrote, they said, we don't want, for example, the Cultural Revolution to only be researched at Harvard University. There should be Chinese people in China researching the Cultural Revolution. That's really important to us. And that's uh, the kind. those are the kind of voices I thought were much more compelling and interesting. You, you write about in your book some periods in which it was possible to kind of, you know, shine a light in some of the darker corners of China's past, especially the Cultural Revolution. And it was done sort of, you know, with the tacit nod of of the party, right? Um, you know, the party itself has talks all the time about the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. And for a while, you know, there were people who were quite prominent who were making apologies, you know. There are many instances in this book where Mao's death, the rise of Deng, these liberal periods that I'm talking about in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, open up this space for examination of history. Um, it could be argued, and I think I do actually argue, that you know the party of Deng and of you know Jiang and of Hu and Wen was a fundamentally different party than the Mao's party. It had a different composition. It's Ideological underpinnings were, were radically different in, in in practice, if not in theory. It's basic foreign policy orientation. This has all shifted so radically. And, you know, as we said, it opened up the space for reckoning with history. But still, you know, I can't remember who, which of your, 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 your characters talked about as long as Mao's portrait still hangs over Tiananmen, you know, nothing will have changed. So, yeah, it's the, the portrait still hangs there. They, they have kind of, you know, they believed that they needed to still kind of derive legitimacy from Mao. And, you know, like, like Xi Jinping said, the reform period and the Mao period have to be two sides of the same coin. Uh, so that means the party is sort of still 
on the hook, right, uh, for for the crimes of Mao, which is a, you know an uncomfortable position for them, and in in some ways a very kind of lamentable position because you know I think it, it inhibits them in so many ways. Anyway, you must have thought about this a lot, and, and clearly you talked about the issues uh, that this touches on with your subject. So, what were, what were, what's their thinking on this? I think for them, for a lot of them, they they certainly see the Mao era as the big sort of problem that still hasn't really been addressed. And um, you know, I think we it's, it's well known this comparison to the Soviet Union that Khrushchev could de-Stalinize because he had Lenin as the founding father. So you could still say the revolution was good. Lenin was, you know, the, our founding father. Stalin took things off the rails a little bit, but we could basically got rid of him and our state is still legitimate. Mao is more problematic because right. he is the founding father and the guy who took the revolution off the rails. So if you get rid of get rid of him, then you don't really have any found, foundation left for the for the state. Um, and this is sort of, you know, Dung tried to square that circle by saying, oh, you know, it's 70% good, 30% bad or something like that. But they then they had this big resolution on party history that Dung oversaw. And there were many, many people in the party at these big conferences, you know, 1,000 cadre, 4,000 cadre conferences. They came to Beijing and debated stuff. They wanted much stronger criticism about Mao, especially the Great Famine, which is just glossed over even in that resolution right. from 1981. Um, and, 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 and Deng just said, no, we can't do that. We can't go after Mao. I mean, his own son was probably pushed to death or jumped not to death, but um, paralyzed. To paralysis. Paralysis, yeah. yeah when he yeah. fell he was or was pushed out of the dormitory yeah. window. Um, so, you know. You he, don't get to use the word defenestration much. So when you get the chance, just use it. You know, yeah, exactly. Defenestration. defenestration. He was definitely, yeah. So he, he understood that, but they had to keep Mao. And I think this is still the challenge for the party because Mao, at the end of the day, his writings and his ideology is always about struggle. And you yeah. always divide the world into this binary us versus them thinking. And that's not exactly an uplifting ideology on which, you know, that your founding fell father or whatever um, that he, that he pushed. Um, so it, I don't think they can, they can get rid of him. I don't think, I don't think anybody realistically expects that to happen for decades or centuries. I mean, who knows? But. There are so many other things that I'd love to talk to you about in this book. Um, there's so much on, the history museum, for example, that it's a great, and I, I love uh, how you structured it with these. I don't know what you call them; these little text boxes that are sort of the interstitial uh, kind of anecdotes that 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 uh, are between the major chapters, which are just f fantastic and so well chosen. But let me let me uh, be respectfully of your time here and ask you just one more question, which is: What would you say is the single most important thing that your book adds to our understanding? of regime critics in China? Well, I think that we have to realize that the state currently under Xi Jinping, as powerful as it is, it has not crushed all free thought, that there are still people in China today who are availing themselves of basic digital technologies and just person-to-person -person contact to keep alive a different vision of China. Um, I am will be giving a talk uh, in New York with uh, my interlocutor will be Gal Beckerman, who wrote a book called The Quiet Before. And that is basically talks about the slow burn process of how social movements take off. They don't take off, you know, sort of all right away. They take off with slow person to person contacts. And I think this is something that you can see from this book, that there is this group tens of thousands of people, I would say, this small collective memory of a different kind of China that could be, and that they're still at it and they're still active. And if we're always, if we're looking for interlocutors in China and people are always like, who do we talk to? We can't talk with the communist party. These are the kind of people we could be talking to more. We could be inviting them. It sort of stuns me that there's not been a major retrospective at a big film festival of Hu Jie, of his films. I mean, he made three classic documentary films. He's made more, but three of them are just outstanding. 
And these kinds of things, I think they could, we should be more aware of them just, and, and this would also give people a different view of China. You know, I think there's so many people in the West who see China as this monolith with um, just sort of bad commies running the show. And, and while there may be some truth to that, it's important to realize that there are other people out there too, and that they're significant in number. They're not all just sort of beleaguered victims about to be arrested right away. Um, they have agency and they're doing interesting stuff and we should try to engage with them. Go over, visit them, bring our university, you know, startup university exchanges more. I mean, especially us going there. All those things are sort of takeaways that I put in the conclusion um, that if you're looking and because I am working at the Council on Foreign Relations, I have to have a little bit of a policy wonk, you know, takeaway thing. Um, those are that's in the conclusion of my book is some things that we could consider um, as, as implications of, of these stories. Ian Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time and chat with me this, this evening. The book, once again, is called Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. And you should order yourselves a copy right now. All right. Do it. Do it. Let's move on now to recommendations. But first, a quick announcement. I wanted to let all of our fans in the Midwest, and you are legion, uh, know that Seneca is coming live to you in Chicago for uh, October 10th, Double Ten Day. Uh, we are partnering with the Paulson Institute and Becker Friedman Institute China for the inaugural event of their Decoding China series. So Damien Ma from Macro Polo, uh, Lizzie Lee from, uh, from the China Project, and a, a special guest from the Becker Friedman Institute uh, will all be doing a live podcast recording as well as a China Knowledge game show in which some lucky audience members can also participate. And that will be at the Booth School of Business Gleacher Center. The event is completely free to attend, but you do need to register it through Becker Friedman Institute. You can find a link to that on our website at events.thechinaproject.com. Right after the event, the China Project is going to be hosting a special after-show dinner at a nearby Sichuan restaurant called Lao Sichuan, where... Participants can grill me and our other guests about China over some of the most delicious Chinese food that Chicago has to offer. The dinner ticket is $199. Uh, to register, please go to events.thechinaproject.com. Oh, and of course, do not forget about our next China conference on November 1st and 2nd in New York. The lineup is stellar. Even better now that Ian Johnson is going to be joining. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Ian, what do you have for us? Okay, I have a couple of things really quick. Um, the book I mentioned before by Gal Beckerman, The Quiet mm -hmm. Before, The Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas, where he talks about the three-stage play or the three-act play of, of revolutions and how we always focus on the third act, which is when people are out in the streets doing stuff. But we really ought to focus on the first act, which is when links and contacts are made and the foundational work is done. I think that's a really great book. Um, and then the other thing, if I just on a self-promotional aspect, um, something that I'm launching, um, and it should be launched by the time this podcast is out, the target launch date is September 22nd, but it's a new website called China Unofficial Archives. And this is mm. um, an archive site of all... Of, right now, we have over 800 items in the archive. We're books, Zamazat publications, documentary films. We have stuff, people working on this, and we have some grant money. The URL is uh, minjian, M-I-N-J-I-A-N, hyphen danganguan for archive, D-A-N-G-A-N-G-U-A-N dot O-R-G. And we are a, a, you know, a charitable organization. I'm doing this work just uh, sort of pro bono on myself. We have some staff people, web designers, some people who are obviously paid, but we're doing this as a way to make available this amazing output of work by unofficial art historians in China. I want to sort of do this primarily at, for a Chinese audience because the material is all in Chinese at the end of the day, right? We'll have, it'll be curated. It will have a description of each item in the in our holding to explain why we have it there. But the, I guess the main target audience is Chinese. But I think for Westerners, it's interesting just to see the sheer scope, ambition of these people who have been working on this for over 75 years, this incredible sort of output. So that's the China Unofficial Archives, Minjian Dangan Guan. 
And I'm sure Kaiser will put the link on the site. I page. sure will. I sure will. And you might as well just take that visa in your passport and just rip it up at this point, right? <laughs> I'm just showing the diversity of China. What's wrong right, with that? Right, 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 I love right. China. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. Uh, we were talking a little bit ago about Germany, and I, I've been sort of on a German literature kick of late. I've been reading uh, Thomas Mann's Death in Venice and other stories. Um, it's it's a really short, kind of a, more of a novella, anything, but it's 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 in a collection uh, that was published, I think, in the nineties. But this this translation is really awesome. The translator is this guy named Joachim Neugrosse, uh, and his his preface to this is just amazing, just for the exploration that he offers of just the difficulties of translating German to English, things that I had never thought about, uh, just these grammatical features of German. I mean, Ian, you speak German, so you, you understand, like the fact that verbs come in at the ends of sentences, and you know, something about you know the way that subordinate clauses work, and how you know rhyme schemes in German, you know, in, in, in English, if you have a, you know, a polysyllabic rhyme, that's reserved for, you know, sort of juvenile doggerel. You only do that just, it's, it's to be kind of cutesy and funny. It's never for serious poetry. Our serious poetry, when it rhymes at all, has, you know, monosyllabic rhymes, but completely the opposite in Germany. Uh, I just never really thought about these things, and it, it's really fascinating. I had read The Magic Mountain, and I had never read Death in Venice, which is really kind of strange. Uh, but now, um, anyway, on that on that kick, uh, look forward to talking about German literature with you next time that we we encounter one another, Ian. Yeah, in New York at the yeah conference. Oh uh, uh, yeah, Ian, thank you so much. It was uh, wonderful to speak to you, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. It was great talking to you too, Kaiser, and thanks for having me on. Uh, all right, all right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by the China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Citer, as it's now called, or on Facebook at, at the China Project, And be sure to check out all of the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.